while the longest running war the U.S. was involved in uh, was with the USSR, the Cold War, beginning in 1945, ending in 1990, not done with weapons or warfare, but with words and ideas. Uh, the battle against communism and the United States' position on that. And, and I can remember in the 1970s as a kid hearing references when we would go into public, um, even in uh, circles where my parents had friendships, referring to those in the USSR as those, fill in a word, commies. You may remember that if you're old enough, hearing others use those terms as well. And then in 1990, with the dissolve of the USSR, of course, things changed. But there was a hatred that existed country to country, many with each side because of these differing ideas related to politics and related to positions in life. And, of course, we know as well there are religious systems behind those as well. And so there was this struggle. So that transition, when that took place in, in, again, 1990, for years following, many remained angry, hating in actuality those who were from the other country. And so I can remember years following, there would still be conversations and comments that were given, especially for those who were involved in world wars and who were involved in those areas as well. So for many... Americans, hatred exists for others. Maybe not for you, but when we don't have a, a common enemy, another country that we can set our sights against, oftentimes we go towards the individual and we can have great disdain or great anger, animosity, hatred towards other individuals. So the statement that many Americans hate people is true. Once again, may not be you. It's evidenced in some ways, kind of in a funny way, um, some restaurants actually have uh, names of items or breakfast or lunch items related to this. In fact, last week we went to uh, breakfast with the Barnes at the shack, and I noticed on the menu there were a couple of menu items that relate directly to what we're talking about. The first menu item, why the French hate us. The item, toasted croissants stuffed with two sausage links, scrambled eggs covered in gravy and cheddar cheese, and served with hash browns. Apparently, the French don't think that we should serve a meal like that. The second, I think, is even better. Love me now, hate me later. Okay, you can imagine what's going to be in this dish. Burrito stuffed with scrambled eggs, hash browns, crushed Fritos, cheddar cheese nestled on a bed of chili, and smothered with cheese sauce, topped with green onions. Now, you could definitely see how you would love a person sitting there at a table eating, but 30 minutes later, maybe not so much uh, because of the after effects of that. Uh, we are in an election year, and of course, politics could be seen as the whipping boy for individuals hating one another, but we've seen this on so many levels. If you're a Chiefs fan, you know, when the Raiders come into town, great rivalry. And so there are fights that break out in the stands, in the parking lot between these opposing football teams. Basketball in recent days of one of our local colleges. A player running up into the stands, getting in a fight, being suspended. That happens consistently. We see fights in stands, fights after games 
really just over two teams and a love for one and a hate for the other. We also see in schools this bullying that takes place. Groups honing in on an individual and absolutely driving them into the ground to the point where statements are made like, if it's been a while, by the way, since you've been in a public middle school or high school, these statements are definitely real. Uh, You are a horrible person. You should just kill yourself. This bullying, this individual and group bullying that takes place in our schools is is absolutely horrific and destroys the lives of those who are apart, crushing for students. How middle schoolers and high schoolers, some even make it through the process in the public school system amazes me. We too, many of us, walked through public school, went through that, uh, but, but it has changed a lot. And so then we see teachers and administrations trying to manage and help these kids, speaking life, especially if the teachers and administration are believers, followers of Jesus, seeing this happen, trying to encourage those students that are isolated. It also happens in the workplace. And believe it or not, it can even happen at times in the church. Differing views, opinions, what takes place, a group gets settled, someone tries to come in, become a part of the group, and for whatever reason, either lostness or uh, differing Uh, Dress styles, differing opinions, again, the way that person carries themselves can be isolated to the point where they're excluded. You're not a part of us. It's possible that you've been a part of a church like that before, where you've actually been isolated or split apart. This idea of people hating one another, excluding others, is a reality in our culture and really heartbreaking to God, and it should be heartbreaking to us as we see this happen. We should become advocates, in fact, for those who are being isolated in such a way to share the love of Christ with them. We are called to be different, and that is what John is addressing in our passage today, 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, actually showing us the source and testimony of radical love is conclusively Christ. And those will be the two points that we focus and hone in on through the message. But before we read our passage, let's pray together. So God, this morning as we consider this passage, as we begin to prepare, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work and move. God, that you would show us yourself in great ways this morning, that you would speak to each one of us individually through your word. And God, that we would respond with openness of heart and mind and life to you. We thank you for your word and how clear it is. Help us today. In Jesus' name, amen. The questions that are flowing from the passage that we're going to read are, where do followers of Jesus fall within what John is communicating? And what are we going to do with it? So if you're a follower of Jesus, directly, this is for you and for me. 1 John 2, 7 through 11. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. 
Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So first we see the source of radical love is Christ. Let's reread verse 7. Again, beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. What is that word? It's nothing new. It's to love people. The greatest two commandments in the entire Bible from what Jesus communicated is to love God and love people. If we look back to the Old Testament, we see the Ten Commandments are written in that exact way. Loving God, loving people. All of those reflect our relationships. And then Jesus, New Testament, stating that, emphasizing that through the entirety of his life and then that being passed after him to those who are in leadership and to us today. Love God, love people two greatest commandments that we have. John 13 is a great place for us to look. We think of, when we think of this concept, the idea of our following Christ in a love relationship with him and loving people, uh, there, are, there are two or three things that stick out in particular. One is humility. In the way that we are to approach people, who we are to be personally, is, is humble in Christ. Humble meaning placing other needs above our own, looking for opportunities to be able to shower the love and encouragement of Christ with people. It's also sacrificial. And so we look for opportunities to be able to sacrifice our very lives, our time, our talents, our efforts, what we have, because it's all God's anyway, for the sake of others. Uh, John 13, verse 1, one of the greatest pictures of self-sacrifice of Christ that we see outside of the cross, this in particular, his love and the way he approached the disciples, what they were doing in the upper room, Passover. Let's read it. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had become he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So in this moment, Jesus, obviously being the leader of this group, the, the number one position, did what would be assumed of the least— and began to self-sacrifice in a loving way, wash the feet of the disciples, pouring his very life out for them, showing what it meant to sacrifice his life for him, that he, again, arguably the lead of this group, was willing to stoop and to do that because he loved them, teaching them by example what it meant to be humble, to sacrifice. We then just page over several verses later, see... In John 13, uh, 34 to 38, 30, 34 to 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in considering this and how 
Jesus was not only approaching the disciples, but how John was communicating that and then communicating to us in 1 John what we are to do. Our lives are to be characterized by the love of God to others, for others, and for him. And so really the first question for us to process in our own lives and hearts is how are we doing in the area of loving? When people see us, know us, really know us, do they know, first and foremost, that our primary love relationship is with God? They may see us function in different ways, and of course our time is spent in different ways, but do they primarily see that in our lives from the depths of our hearts that we have a love for our king? Secondly, if they were asked, and let's even go to a surface level of relationships with people, that you know, would they know that you care about them more than just a passing glance, that you care enough about them, that you actually love them, again, through the power of God, but outside of that or within that, that you actually love them as people, that you're not trying to use them for something else or for something that that would fill some kind of a need in your life, but that you're actually after their good and their benefit, lost or otherwise. We know that when we build relationships as followers of Jesus with the lost, our primary driving goal is to be able to share the gospel and to grow the kingdom. That is why we function. That's how God has placed us on this planet. That's why we're living in the house, the apartments that we're living in, because he has specifically placed us in those areas to be the hands and feet of Jesus to those around us. So if people were asked, if we were to go door to door to your neighbors, let's just say two on either side and then the four directly across the street, maybe even if you have a backyard, or if you're in an apartment, the two apartments, other side and across. And one of us, we'll just say, for example, me, would walk up and knock on the door. Hey, how are you? They would look at me. Who are you? (laughs) Uh, Get off my porch. Uh, If they were actually able to have the conversation, they would look at me and I'd say, okay, tell me about Nathan and Sarah Bishop. Would they say, who? Oh, yeah, we we know Nathan and Sarah. They're they're right next door. Well, tell me two or three things about them. Well, we know they have kids. (laughs) Uh, That's true. A lot of joy in that household. There's a lot happening over there. It's exciting. Would one of the characteristics of Nathan and Sarah, I picked on them on purpose, would it be there's something different about them? They care about me beyond just being a neighbor. They do this weird thing on Sunday mornings. They get in their car, pack it all up, and leave. I watch them. It's weird. When I talk to them, they say, well, we're going to church. They've told us about this this Jesus character, (laughs) would that be characteristic of the bishop's neighbors? It would be. Would it be of yours? Do they even know your names? Do you even interact with them, or do you pull into the garage, close the door, and end it? Our neighbors should know the love of God from our lives and our love for them by extension. If that's not the reality of where you are, That's a great place to start. God, help me get to the point where I can actually share the gospel with my neighbors and that I would be your loving hands and feet to them and your voice. He has placed you where you are, in your cubicle at work, in your home, at your school, wherever you are, intentionally 
to be an influence for the king with those that are around you, to love him in front of them and to love them and to share. John was communicating this again with the church and he's communicating it with us in verse 7. This is not new. We are called to love because if we are his followers, his love is deeply ingrained in our lives and hearts. And we all have a testimony of how he radically changed and saved us and we should be sharing it. Verse 8. Another challenging verse for us. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and true light is already shining. So what is he highlighting here? He's reminding the church, reminding us that we are called to be light in the darkness. And at times that will be very difficult. Because what does light do in darkness? It exposes the truth of who we are. When we read God's word, when we spend time investing in him in that way, and he in us, we memorize, we hide his word in our heart that we wouldn't sin against him. When we do that and we come close to our creator, to the lover of our lives, the lover of our souls, what happens? The darkness in our lives is exposed. And in the process of that, we have a decision to make. Will I confess and repent of my sin and continue in the journey? Or will I continue to try to be like Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned and hide and cover ourselves up with the leaves or whatever we would use in our day and time? Do we continue to try to hide this darkness, this sin in our lives that obviously when we come into close relationship with Christ, he exposes, or are we going to actually take action on it? This darkness that exists, our world, needs desperately to have people of light, sharing the truth, sharing the difference. How are you doing in that area? John was challenging, calling out for those to do that. And then in verse 9, we see the first of two statements, the first being negative, the second being positive. Uh, verse 9, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Pretty stark contrast between the light and the dark. If we claim to be followers of Jesus and to live in the light, to live in him, then hatred should not exist in our lives and hearts for people. So he points out the negative. Then in verse 10 he goes on, talks about the positive. Whoever loves his brother abides. There's that term abide again. We spent some time on that last week. We'll do that again in two weeks. Abides, remains in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. So we see that as we walk with Christ, as we love people, as we abide in Christ in the process of all of that, then this idea of or this cause of stumbling for us personally, relationship with the Lord and with people, this cause of stumbling diminishes or goes away. And so if our hearts and our minds and our attitudes and our lives are right, and we're abiding in Christ, and we're expressing and sharing love, and we're not in hatred, bitterness, delighting in Christ, then that area, at least, of our lives for stumbling is, is eliminated. And we can actually walk in strength, courage, conviction, making a difference. This testimony that pours from our life is radical love for Christ and for people. And it's conclusive. Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother, so he goes back to the negative, is in the darkness 
and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's as if we're getting up in a completely dark room and we're trying to walk and manage and navigate. I remember stories of an Africa trip uh, that Jay West went on with David, and there were multiple uh, of you that went on that trip. And, and Jay West said there would be times in the middle of the night where someone would get up and have to use the restroom or get a drink of water. Unfamiliar place. And so what would happen? Walk, bump into something. Even at times, walls. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, and so, uh, so this, this idea of trying to walk around in the darkness when we are hating others, this blindness like a dark covering uh, shields our eyes and we're not able to even see. At times we can't even see our own hatred unless the power of the Holy Spirit convicts us and we recognize it. Or if a brother or sister comes into our life and is unafraid and shares with us, hey, I see this possible blind spot. Could you talk to me about that? Maybe an uncomfortable conversation, but as brothers and sisters, if we really love one another the way we're supposed to, there are times when the Holy Spirit convicts us to talk with one, not for the sake of punching them or putting them down or trying to destroy their lives, but to encourage them, hey, this might be a blind spot for you. Talk to me about that. How can I pray for you in that? John was reminding those and us that if we are hating those around us, we are actually walking in darkness. And the light needs to be revealed in those areas of our lives. The source of radical love is Christ. Back to chapter 2, verse 6. This is a, a powerful verse that we talked through last week. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so it's our lives lived out as if Jesus were in our place. So how are we doing in that area related to others? Uh, there are times when we can agree to disagree. You know, as a church, we have a vision, vision, mission, strategy. We've been talking about that, Multiply 2028. It is a direct course that we believe the Lord has given us as a church to go in that direction. You may not agree with everything in that statement. You may not agree with anything in that statement, but there are several points of that. But do we, in the process of that, focus on those pieces that are in opposition to our personal opinion, or in the process of that, do we agree to disagree and plow ground together in the way Christ is calling us to be as a church? See, we can have disagreements, and that's fine, and we can do that in love towards one another, for one another. But in the process of that, because Christ is our vision, our focal point, we cannot focus on the disagreements. We can focus on him and we can move forward together. In your life, is it easier to mention that, well, I disagree with this? Or, but I agree with this and I may not agree with everything. But God has called me to this church. He's called our church to this. And we're going forward for the sake of the gospel and for the glory of God. We can all be on the same page in that way. Related to our relationships with people, in this testimony of love, love being conclusively Christ, are we allowing, asking for, looking for Christ to so impact the lives of others through our lives that 
our vision and focus is him. Last week we read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 at the end of the service, if you remember, if you were with us. Spiritual armor. The first couple of verses in that, for we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities and authorities of this dark world. And there are times when we forget that, that our struggle isn't against this over-commanding boss who we could categorize as a yahoo <laughs> if he's not or she's not great. Our struggle is not against these pagan neighbors who have these all-the-hour things that are happening and waking up us or our kids or our dogs or whoever it is and our frustration gets displaced. Our struggle is not against people who have differing views and opinions. Our struggle is not against people of a different religious faith. Now, it's clear all throughout the New Testament that we are to hold to the gospel and that we are to verbally speak the truth. So obviously with those who claim another God or claim something else, we've got to, out of responsibility and desire for them to know Jesus, share the truth with them and not compromise. But we are to love them as Christ loved. Think of the Pharisees. Jesus, pretty strong against those guys verbally. Whitewashed tombs, insights filthy, outside clean, keeping the rules, called them out as they were, said it would be better, in fact, for a stone to be tied around their necks and for them to be cast in the sea than to, than to do what? Than to lead others astray, especially children. So he was pretty stark in the way he spoke. He never compromised the truth. So we don't have to love what people love. But did Jesus love the Pharisees? Did he desire that they would submit, surrender their lives to him? That they would follow him and that he would see him in the kingdom? Absolutely. John 3.16. For God so loved the world, all that he gave his one and only son, not just for some. So in in this statement in John 3.16, if he truly died for all and loved all, he died for the Pharisees and loved the Pharisees who were in direct opposition to him. So are we loving people who are in direct opposition to the gospel and to us? And I would say a better question is, are we loving well people who are in direct opposition to us? Not their ideas, not compromising. That should challenge us. We have to remember that our struggle is not against people. It's against our enemy, the devil. It's against our flesh. And if we can get the eyes and the minds and the hearts of Christ, that could radically change everything. Social media feeds... How does yours or how do yours look? <coughs> Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever you post on, if you post. If people were just to see those who don't have contact with you regularly, would they see the love of Christ pouring out from what you type, from what you post? 
where they see something else. Maybe it's time. If that's not the case, if you can't effectively change what you put out, just to get away from it. Maybe it's time for some of us to turn off our favorite news channel, regardless of your leanings, for a period of time. And pray that in the process of that, distance from it, fasting from it, maybe, that he would radically change our minds and hearts to the point where we can communicate his love everywhere we go. In 2008, Francis Chan wrote a book called Crazy Love. 2010, David Platt wrote a book called Radical. So maybe your new or next book will be Crazy Radical Love or something like that for a title. But in those books, both have really great quotes. And then I want to read one from Charles Spurgeon and then we'll wrap it up. David Platt said in Radical, this brings to us the crucial question for every professing or potential follower of Jesus. Do we really believe he is worth abandoning everything for? Abandoning to love God, abandoning to love people. Do you and I really believe that Jesus is so good, so satisfying, and so rewarding that we will leave all we have and all we own and all we are to find our fullness in him? Do you and I believe him enough to obey him and to follow him where he leads, even when the crowds in our culture and maybe in our churches turn the other way. Francis Chan wrote this in his book. Paul writes, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Is loving God, and by extension, loving people, what you are about? Is it what being a Christian means to you? Do you live as through faith, demonstrated through love, really the only thing that counts? Final quote, Charles Spurgeon, and this is a bit of a longer one. Suppose you should be converted, become a child of God, and be saved. The first thing you will discover will be that God has loved you. What a change that will make in all your feelings towards him. You will never again say to the Lord, wherein hast thou loved me? But if you feel as I did... When I first found out the love of God to me, you will begin tracing your old history from the cradle up to the moment of your conversion, and you will say, I can see the Lord's loving hand there. And there? And there? You will look upon your trials, your losses, your crosses, your removals from one village or town to another, and you will say, ah, it was love that watched over me all the while, it was love that was arranging all that happened for my good. And you will be amazed at the difference that feeling will make in your life. Before you knew the Lord, you could not realize his love. But as soon as ever you really know him, you will say, all his dealings with me have been proofs of his love. You will put up your hands in wonder and say, how could I have been such a mad fool as to go on sinning against God in spite of such wondrous love? It really seems to me now as if the more I sinned, the more he loved me. The worse I was to him, the better he was to me. Over against my black sin, he set the whiteness and brightness of his grace. He seemed as if he conquered me, not by the sheer force of his might, but by the superior power of his boundless love. Further, if you shall be converted, 
It will not be long before you will find out, in addition to God being loving and kind to you in his providence, he so loved you that he gave his only begotten son to die for you. The general truth that Christ died for sinners is unspeakably precious, but the sweetest truth in all the world is for any one of us to be able to say, he died for me. Many Americans hate one another. Many Americans hate in general. If your life was categorized either by hate or love, which would come to the forefront? Not only in your deepest heart of hearts, but for those around you. What would they say of you? If it is not love, I pray for all of us with our biases and our prejudices and all that we've experienced and the bitterness we carry, that Christ would so radically speak into our lives that the Holy Spirit would so radically move conclusively in Christ, that those areas would be transformed and changed by his love so that the testimony, once those final words are said of us, if Christ doesn't return first, even if so, but if we pass from this planet in death, that the words would be of our lives. That individual loved God. That individual loved people. He, she loved me. That's what he wants for us. Where are you today?